Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today we're looking at On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross was a Swiss psychiatrist, end-of-life psychologist, and the author of several books, She lived and worked in the United States in the mid-20th century, and this book was written in 1969. She's probably most known for her five stages of grief model, uh, but she was also a pioneer in the field of hospice care and palliative care. Today, helping me unpack this book was Andrea Dispensieri. We talked about a lot of things. We got into Kubler-Ross's thoughts on the denial of death, reminding ourselves of our mortality, impermanence, the fear of death in the modern age, emotional detachment, verbal ventilation, the importance of being seen. Then in the second half of the conversation, we went through the five-stage model, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And more specifically, we talked about euphemism, fantasy, the link between denial and isolation, different ways anger gets directed, anger at God, bargaining with God, hope, reactive depression versus preparatory depression, and how healthy acceptance is often conflated with quitting or giving up. Um, I really enjoyed talking with Andrea. She was just full of insights, uh, many of which I only caught listening back to the episode a second time. So I really hope that this conversation is of value to you, and I think that it will be. So here it is, my conversation with Andrea on death and dying. So we met through my sister. That's right. Uh, so shout out to Katie Stahura. Mm-hmm. Big shout for, out to Katie. Yeah. This wouldn't have happened without her. Um, and you two used to dance together for a while, right? That's right. Right before I became a psychotherapist, I was mm. a dancer. And uh, Katie and I connected through one of my very first projects of when I returned back to New York after living in Salt Lake City dancing there for two years so um okay so katie was part of my new wave of dance friends as i reintegrated back into the new york city dance scene love it yeah and we we're still friends to this day and it was really nice to connect with you through her it was so funny because she was just like you should totally meet andrea like you guys are both i think she said like you guys are both nerds or something like (laughs) that i was like totally totally. (laughs) so yeah we all hung out and we're just like all Mm -hmm. right and then, yeah, we were kind of thinking of different uh, pieces to do for this. And we were kind of thinking about different things um, involving death just mm. because of kind of the symbolic nature of like Halloween just passed, fall, autumn is a lot of times mm-hmm. associated with end of life. And, yeah, um, right. And yeah, if we want to bring some context to time and place, right, it's also Scorpio season, just every Mm. year Halloween signals that um, and if you celebrate Halloween in the traditional sense it's it's really a homage to this season that is all about death um, all about the taboo Mm. all about deep psychological dives and uh, study of yeah study of things that are not mainstream like the occult but also um, and then sex falls into that category, yeah. especially Scorpios. If you <laughs> read any Cosmo is always associated with sex. So that's a big, um, a big tie in. And of, of course, that's the nature of any 
polarity. When you have death, you're also comparing it to life. Mm, And the erotic is a a way of feeling aliveness. And, um, and, And sometimes like we feel our aliveness most when we are recognizing death and our own mortality. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And thinking about it as like kind of two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, and we'll get to it when we kind of get into the book, but yeah. throughout this book on death and dying, each chapter begins with a little quote mm-hmm. by um, an Indian philosopher, uh, Tagore. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. T-A-G-O-R-E. This was the, in the last chapter. Death belongs to life as birth does. The walk is in the raising of the foot as in the laying of it down. So good. Yeah. Yeah. I was even thinking like, so they're saying, you know, death is, is a part of life. You could also, or like a part of birth. You can also think of like birth is a part of death. Yes. As well. Right. Well, in Jungian psychology, we would call this a threshold experience. Mm. Death is yeah. a portal. It's seen as a threshold crossing, just like birth is. And birth, you are crossing from the threshold. Oh, you're crossing over the threshold from the womb world into the yeah. life world as as you embark on this journey being human and, and the hero's journey of um fulfilling your life purpose and all of that that's and it, that's so great it made me think of um Otto Ronk has a book I haven't read it but the book is about kind of the hero's journey that begins from the time we're kind of conceived to the time we're born mm-hmm. and that like mm-hmm. e- even just that is its own um kind of hero's journey mm-hmm. and that by the time we are born we've already kind of undergone a lot Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think when, we, when we're talking about, just to com- you know, come back to the reasons why we seasonally need to reconfront death at mm. this time of year is, as human beings, we always kind of put our own mortality to the back burner, to mm. the backs of our minds. It's, it's a functional thing, right? You can't really function well when you're always worried about when your impending doom will come. Right. And so it's, it's a healthy a healthy denial, a healthy mm. dissociation of um, away from our own mortality. But um, sometimes if we forget too well that mortality exists um, and that death exists, we become you know, sort of in this hubris place thinking we're invincible. And yeah. and it's just a, um, I mean, a moment ago I was mentioning the memento mori and um, before we started this podcast recording. And um, that's something that also comes from this culture of our, our, I want to say international culture of um, having rituals to remember death and acknowledge Mm. death and respect death. And the memento mori is one that it's Latin. So it comes from Latin, Latin culture as in the original Roman empire. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's, it just means to remember that you can die and you can have any kind of token that reminds you of that. Um, yeah. Have, and this was new news to me. Yeah. So my, we, <laughs> you have a vulture. I and, have my vulture yeah. here. <laughs> right. I actually yeah. keep it all year round out in my house and, and that's my that's, memento mori. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it actually is. I thought, I thought you were just kind of saying that for today, but that this actually is kind of the function that it serves is just this, this like reminder of your mortality. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it means a lot of things to me. Um, I, I also do, as, as a therapist, I practice internal family systems, which yeah. uh, is um, kindly referred to as parts work. And mm-hmm. uh, one of my inner parts is actually a vulture. So that's how I took a liking to it, was in a way of befriending this part of me that yeah. um, in, in, in my own system just kind of exists as a like a, a spirit animal in the desert mm-hmm. and a reminder that, um, you know, we, abundance and plenty and what you, what you have could be taken away at any time. Yeah. And so there's the, anything, anything is, um, you know, perishable and impermanent. It's a, it's a reminder of impermanence too, if we want to bring in some Buddhist philosophy. Right, right. So, um, this part of me functions for me personally as a reminder of impermanence mm. and a way to sort of detach from some of thing, some of the things that I hold dear as a reminder that, you know, you might not have this one day. Yeah. And then because you know, it's impermanent, well, you, you definitely won't have it one day. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. And, um, because it's impermanent, that's that's the double-edged sword, or the, the two-sided mm-hmm, coin of mm-hmm. of death and life. You know that it's impermanent. You know that death will happen. You know that an end will come, and so you can then even more appreciate the pleasure and the joy of having the things you have, and you have even more gratitude for it. Right, right. You're yeah. kind of it, it helps you to kind of stay present in the moment and appreciate things more mm-hmm. yeah um, and that's the scorpio season right the the erotic and and death being mm. the two sides that's why we have you know scary movies mm-hmm. um we we get or like going on a thrilling roller coaster we get this near-death experience either vicariously mm-hmm. through the characters on the screen or for our own body to feel what it would be like to fall to our death and yeah. in, <laughs> in a roller coaster but um but it also when we get out of that movie that what the exhilaration and the adrenaline is also a reminder of how alive we still are and that can be um very exciting and arousing so there's yeah. this that's well then the, and it also made me think of like the french um saying like lip what is it um uh, there's, there's a French saying, I'll, maybe I'll put it in the show notes, but it's, it basically translate to a tiny death. Mm-hmm. It's describing mm-hmm. an orgasm. Yes. So there is that, even like you said, the, the tie between eroticism and death is very intimate mm-hmm. um, and shows up in a lot of different ways. Yeah. yeah. And so as we were talking and about to dive into this book, I think La it's important. Mort. That's what it is. Yeah. La yeah. Petite Mort. <laughs> there we go. We, yeah. yeah. Sorry, but you go ahead. I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up. No, I <laughs> yeah. did. Um, that's so true. And um, so as we're about to dive into this book, which, right, as uh, as I was reading it, sometimes there were parts of me that were like, oh, this is depressing. It's mm. a downer. It's it's, But it's also, um, you know, in a way, it, it can, yes, it can be very much a, a downer in terms of energy, but it, it does also remind us in a stoic way of how this is a fact of life, a fact mm. of reality. Yeah. And sometimes that can inspire you to turn towards your life with a bit more vigor and vitality. Um, And then when I talk about the erotic, I just want to be clear, I'm also speaking from Audre Lorde's essay on the erotic, the erotic Mm. is power. And, um, you know, her 
description of the erotic is something that just lives within within any facet of life if you can turn yourself on to uh, receive and attune to that vibrancy that's yeah. all around you, um, feeling joy and pleasure and aliveness in just touching the wood of your table, remembering that that came from a tree or like getting in touch with your senses of the temperature of the air on your skin. Mm. And there's always opportunities to feel alive and to find the erotic of the moment, even as we're slow, all slowly dying. So, and I, what I think, you know, while this book specifically focuses on the terminally ill who have been given this, label this diagnosis Mm -hmm. of you are now slowly dying or you are about to die a little more quicker Mm -hmm. we're actually all in that boat um so it's just but it's just more imminent for some and and when you're much closer to that point it it brings all of these things to the forefront well and they she says in this book they're kind of forced to confront it uh they're kind of given no choice but to confront it and that Mm -hmm. Um, and she actually starts this book. The first chapter is called The Fear of Death. And she kind of talks about the cultural taboo around death nowadays and the fear and denial of death. And then kind of gives some kind of theories on why that might be the case. I was thinking that oh, might be a kind of cool place to start. I have so many thoughts it, on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll just read a few of these quotes up front to kind of frame this. Um, all right. She says, when we look back in time and study old cultures and people, we are impressed that death has always been distasteful to man. Um, so she's saying, you know, we've always kind of had this distaste to death in any culture, any time in history, but she is kind of highlighting there's something significant about when she was writing this, which is in the 1960s, these kind of last couple decades, it seems like that fear and denial was like exponential. Mm. And the first thing she kind of attributes this to are advances in medicine. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was really fascinating. So she says, the more we're making advances in science, the more we seem to fear and deny the reality of death. Mm. And I think there's probably a couple reasons for this. So one that she mentions is, Infant mortality has just been so much more commonplace pretty much any previous generation throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the last kind of hundred years, it's it's kind of an outlier to, you know, either have a child or a sibling who passes away at a young age. Whereas at any other point in history, that would have that was very common. Yeah. So I, I can speak personally. I've I've been fortunate enough to experience very little death in my life. I mean, mm-hmm. some grandparents, aunts and uncles, a few friends who who took their life. Um, but I, I would imagine that had I lived, you know, 300 years ago, that number would be way, way higher. It certainly would. There's a movie I love called Antonia's Line. Mm. And, and in that movie, there are just, I remember watching it the first time. And what really struck me was how often there was a character dying. Yeah. And, you know, just from a tractor accident or, mm. um, yeah, a childbirth. Um, someone did take their life in that movie. So there's, um, it, it's, it's much more commonplace and 
prevalent, but it's true, right? Modern medicine has, has helped us avoid a lot of what could have been perilous situations Mm. and illnesses. And also at the same time, because of modern medicine, when we do have something that, that is potentially terminal, we do Mm. go into a setting, a hospital. Um, We go into these places that where the death experience is hidden away from public view, Mm. whereas death would happen out in public view right. much more frequently or in the, in the home in yeah. the home right yeah. exactly so you know to to happen upon a relative or a friend who had died was just a lot more common so then i think it's in a way we've like become I don't know if desensitized is the word. Um, it's just that it's it's kind of hidden even more. Yeah. It's hidden and it's so out of view. We just think of it as something that happens when you're old, happens in a nursing home, mm-hmm. and it happens away. Kind of like where trash goes. People yeah. <laughs> are like, right. trash just goes right. away. And, and there's this very strong psychological separation from it. Yeah, that's great. You brought up... Um you know, the hospital, and she talks a lot about that as well, that, you know, death is something that used to happen in the home and is now something that happens, you know, kind of in closed doors in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of other things that that leads to, which one of them, which she kind of talks about throughout this whole book, is that at least in the 1960s when she was writing this, the the patient was kind of viewed by the doctors more as just like a, a diagnosis or like a number rather than a human being. And there's this kind of cold clinical um, kind of detached relationship happening, which mm-hmm. also, which I think she's saying kind of increased the sense of loneliness and isolation that a lot of uh, terminally ill people experience and mm-hmm. a lot of elder elderly people. She, Cause that's another yeah. thing that, you know, all the advances in medicine have, made that process of dying a lot more gradual mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and right. yeah that there's just kind of these you know it, we're, we're thankful for the medicine i don't think she's saying we don't want the medicine but she is saying like right. all of these other kind of issues have kind of sprung from this mm-hmm. from these new advances right yeah. right you're um you're extending the dying process mm-hmm. right because there's life support there's there's all of these ways that somebody be, can be kept alive much longer than what would have naturally happened yeah and um i'm glad you're speaking to the very like cold clinical treatment of such patients almost like objects that yeah. this person is now my Frankenstein experiment mm. that I, I can try to keep alive if I can, and they get reduced to a heart that needs to be kept pumping or yeah. lungs that need to be kept uh, breathing and they get reduced to these organs um, mm. or just, you know, a body as an object. And, and that kind of treatment, right. That dehumanizes the person and it totally glosses over the emotional experience of death and Mm. what was so revolutionary about her work because this was you know she was this is also like something that i as i was mentioning before we started this podcast is treated as the gold standard for uh grief grief work grief counseling Mm, um and and there's been of course a lot of 
um, advances since then of understanding that grief is not just a five stage process, that, right, right. et cetera, et cetera. But she was very, for her time, revolutionary in actually focusing on the feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, a, and you get and that a, sense from the book as well. Yeah, and and in that culture, like I'm thinking of the 1960s, it was like the jet set period, and and every and like going to the the World's Fair and um, mm. all these modern wonders, and and just like such a excitement for science and technology, which um, right values logic and reason and rationality, and that's beautiful, and we need yeah. that. But she was bringing something that was. Um, you know, more emotional and, um, and act so sorely needed mm. because as human beings, we're, we're not just, we're not just robots. We're not objects. Um, yeah. we're not experiments where we have feelings and, and this process is terrifying and it actually brings up a lot of our, um, you know, our, the, the inner children that are parts as well that are, you know, just, helpless in the face of something beyond one's control, this process, mm. this life process. Absolutely. And, you know, while we're kind of talking about this, um, you know, how the, the patient is sometimes treated in a very cold, kind of calculated, detached way, she had an idea that basically the reason that some doctors are so cold and calculating and kind of impersonal, especially when they're doing something like um, telling somebody about their diagnosis, mm -hmm. is as like their own protective mechanism. 100%. And yep, yep. I had never thought about this. Uh, she says, quote, sometimes the only way doctors are able to communicate such news is in a cool, detached way. Right, right. Yeah. So you can have empathy and understanding for the people in proximity to the dying person in fact, the the ironic thing about her work was that, you know, she originally started the project as a way to develop um, a roadmap for the dying person mm -hmm. in terms of how they could, you know, have something to expect for their feelings and their and their stages because you're facing a very unknown thing and mm -hmm. having something known somewhat is comforting yeah, yeah. um bring some relief but it actually ended up being used more by the folks in grief and proximity to the dying mm. person so yeah. um so that as her project evolved that's what she kind of discovered was oh actually people who also need their feelings heard is the the staff yeah the um the therapists, the the helping professional, the health professionals that are involved, um, the family, the family, yeah. right? So all of that, all of those individuals who are in proximity to the dying person mm. are um, trying to manage their feelings of helplessness too, because yeah. they're also helpless to this process, and in um, especially like in a medical profession. I mean, traditionally, um, you're you're in the role where you are, you know, take an oath, a Hippocratic oath to do no harm mm -hmm. and to always preserve life as much as possible. And so you get used to that role of being the hero that can save somebody from death. Mm. But what, when somebody is inevitably heading in that direction, it can, it can create this sort of, um, cognitive dissonance about your job and how effective you are as, yeah. as a, as a doctor, as a medical well, professional. Well, and she even mentioned um, sometimes that, like, 
the doctor or the nurse can feel anger towards the patient for dying on them. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. so there's there's that component of it too. I remember there's an episode of Scrubs where certain surgeons didn't want to operate on certain patients because they were more like they were likely to die under the surgery and then that was going to decrease their their statistics, numbers, their numbers. Mm-hmm. and then you know that has all kinds of implications for what kind of jobs that they are able to get so yeah. like yeah there's a lot and i'm not saying that's the only reason they might feel anger towards the patient for dying mm-hmm. there might be other reasons as mm-hmm. well but yeah well and but that speaks to their and our you know everybody's illusion of having control over this thing, Mm. this false sense of control. Yes, we all have some degree of control in our lives. And, and at the same time, we're butting up with that agency and that um, free will against fate. Yeah. And it is fated that everyone will die. Yeah. And so this, so that's, that's sort of the, the helplessness, the, the feeling of not having control when, you've gotten used to feeling like you do and that you you Mm -hmm. can control this thing. Um, And in fact, no, we're just, we're always in relationship to these greater forces. Yeah. I think that's great because once we start going through the stages, we'll kind of see how uh, the dying person's lack of control is responsible for a lot of these feelings, the kind of anger, the kind of bargaining, you know, what if I just do this, then, then will I get to live still kind of clinging to that sense of control? Definitely. But but maybe we can, um, I'm just going to give a quick summary of how this book kind of came to be Mm -hmm. so that we kind of have some context. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, she's a Swiss psychiatrist and she was working in a hospital in Manhattan with terminally ill patients in the 60s as a psychiatrist. Um, And then she became the instructor uh, at Chicago University in the Prisker School of Medicine. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. And yeah, and then in 1965, four theology students from the theology theology seminary uh, approached her about doing this research project where they would basically interview terminally ill patients and ask them a series of questions first just kind of general questions and then more specific questions talking about their feelings uh, around the process of dying their feelings around death and then they would obviously get the the patient's consent and then afterwards the group would discuss the interview and then the students at some later point would write a research paper kind of talking about their impressions of it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it it turned out to be quite a success. I guess it was met with a little bit of resistance at first from the hospital staff. I think mm. they kind of felt like they were maybe interfering a little bit. Yeah, uh, well, and they're being maybe judged. And um, there was like a yeah. critical eye put mm. on their bedside manner. Yeah. <laughs> this is their bedside manner that was being, um, you know, on the line, presented on the line. And and thanks to this work, actually, and I'm sure we can talk about this towards the end, but um, thanks to this work, she actually helped improve, greatly improve the treatment of patients mm. who are in palliative care and who are in this process of dying. Yeah. And, and she also talks a little bit about at the end how many of the patients really responded well to this project, this interview project. 
Um, she said only, less than 2% didn't want anything to do with it. Mm. So that's that's pretty crazy on its on its face mm-hmm. that 98% of people were were willing and eager to to be interviewed. Mm. And she gave a few theories of why this might have been the case. Uh, she thought for one maybe it fulfilled their need to kind of vent some of their anger and frustration about the hospital staff or you know the whole just just kind of an outlet for them. Yes. Verbal ventilation. <laughs> Verbal ventilation. Yeah. <laughs> she uses Which that term a lot. <laughs> you read in some of these interviews, the person is kind of, yeah, trashing the hospital or, uh-huh. or, or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like, that's half my job is <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just letting somebody express raw feelings that are, you know, mm. just candid of how they feel. And, um, yeah, without interruption, without judgment, just a free space to verbally ventilate all of that. And mm. that is incredibly healing to just have a witness. Mm. Because as I mean, this is going back to like our whole like raison d'etre and our our, our um, sense of self, we need other people to validate our experience in order to feel like we really exist. Yeah, like the, if the tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it, like doesn't make a sound. That whole that whole quandary. Mm-hmm. That's that's really what we feel as human beings is that you know if if I am feeling all these feelings inside, but no one's around to witness them and hear me speak them, am I real? Am I existing? Am I even a human being? And all of that is part of you know, especially if you're facing death, life review. You want to feel like your existence was worthy and um or worthwhile and and purposeful and meaningful and Mm. um yeah we could i could talk at length about meaning (laughs) well and that was kind of the other the other thing that patients really got from it was this sense of meaning and purpose and this feeling that they were able to provide some value to other people because that's one of the things she talks about that a lot of these terminally ill patients uh are kind of suffering from is you know they've been quote, useful their whole life to someone. And then they're kind of in this state where they're not able to do a lot of the things that they've been able to do. And a lot of them feel just like they they have no value if they're not able to be providing value to somebody else, Mm -hmm. Um, which is also something that gets brought up with uh, a lot of senior citizens is that, you know, they can they can kind of suffer from depression from feeling like they're they're not um, being of value to somebody. So this yes. project kind of allowed them to feel like, hey, what I'm saying is going to help people, maybe help these students who are listening, maybe help some other people who are mm-hmm. dying in the future who listen to this. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like the end stages of um, Eric Erickson is another <laughs> another gold standard in social work mm. school. But um, yeah, the, the stages of life and the very end stages, there's generativity versus stagnancy or um and then feeling like some satisfaction instead of despair so um you know the the need to feel useful and and like you've contributed something to other generations yeah is really strong and really important so it makes sense that Mm. right in this project here was an outlet for them to feel like they had something to contribute um i remember what stood out to me from that was one that one patient who was like oh like you know if 
the idea of like, if I'm willing to undergo this very risky heart surgery, um, you know, if I survive, then I'll be like the first one ever and I will have contributed to medicine in that mm, way. Yeah. Or if I don't survive, my body will have been used in the study of this process, right? So there's just totally. this sense of having left behind something too yeah. um, of oneself even after you've passed. Yeah, super mm -hmm. important, that sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. There's also, on the point you mentioned, something about like the patient oftentimes doesn't feel like they have control of what's happening to them. She talks about that as well, that um, I, I hope things are a little better now, but at least in the 60s when she was writing this, uh, a lot of dying patients were were not actually given much say as to how they would progress with their treatment mm. and she kind of says it's a bit of a myth to think she said at least in her findings she never came across any dying patient who wanted things that were completely irrational like mm -hmm. usually their wishes were very reasonable but a lot of times maybe the family or the hospital staff was saying, no, 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 like this is what we're going to do and not really giving the dying person a say. Yeah, a sense of agency, yeah. agency and yeah. autonomy. And yeah, it's a um, yeah, respect to their their human, their humanness and their, mm. their dignity of, of being able to have things the way that they want. Some sense of control over something, right? right. Just even like to... I think there was one patient in particular mentioned in the study that um, just really like needed some control over something and the control over when visitors could come yeah, and when yeah. they could not, right? Just mm -hmm. having like some area of uh, that of ownership and, and agency in his life as he was preparing to lose everything. Totally mm -hmm. huge. And again, that's another thing. Um, I think senior citizens often struggle with is as they age and maybe lose some cognitive or physical abilities, they're just not able to do a lot of the same things. And especially, mm -hmm. I think especially men, it's hard for, I know that my grandpa just like, he should not have been driving for a long time. And he just like was not able to give that up. Yeah. Um, just the kind of stubbornness of like, no, I'll, I'll be damned if you're going to drive me or, or if you're going to help me. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, just giving up that. Mm -hmm. Well, even that is a form of denial, right? That's and when anger, we and yeah. anger, right? We start <laughs> to see it just in like the slow decline of of aging. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I am certainly not in the category of senior citizen, but um, you know, I as a former dancer, I look back at what I used mm. to be able to do physically, and I have been grieving and mourning the loss of my physical capacity for some of of that dance. So it, it, this is applicable with the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. It's not just to, you know, say like, Oh, I'm like, I am like you guys and I'm in the same boat, but more so just that this is applicable in a wide way it, because these stages of grief are not just for the dying, but can be also applicable for the loss and the change of anything mm. along the hero's journey, the hero yeah. or the heroine's journey of mm. life, because change is part of life. It's a, that's the only constant. And in my work also with clients who are of a big, broad range of ages, um, you know, everybody experiences a little death, um, in some mm. way through breakups, um, the ending of school and entering into adulthood, yeah. um, right. Adolescence is 
It's oh like, yeah. It's a huge like death and metamorphosis process. Death yeah. and rebirth when you look at all of the kind of initiation rites, how many much of the symbolism revolves around the kind of death of the child mm-hmm. and birth of the adult around right. adolescence and yeah so that's that's grieving kind of your childhood thing. the loss of that yeah. grieving and especially as i'm working with the last thing i'll say on that is mm. um when i do trauma work right a lot of times you know somebody has been living in their coping mechanisms right their denial or what you know their their anger um for a very long time and then when they finally accept that you know, something is, is in the past and that they can't change the past, mm. that the healing can start, but there's also a lot of grief that comes along with that in mm. recognizing how many years were lost to this trauma response or how many, how much time is lost. You know, we, we grieve, we grieve our own mortality even before we even get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a great point and something to kind of, I think, be thinking about as we go through these stages. Uh, I was thinking we could start going through these a little bit. The, yes. the five stages of, of grief, which the acronym I've heard is like DABDA. Mm-hmm. So D-A-B-D-A. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So denial, anger, bargaining, uh, depression, and acceptance. So, and, and just kind of up top, I think you might've mentioned this earlier. She does mention here that these stages are not always necessarily linear that's and, right. and often overlap or kind of come in cycles mm-hmm. and can go back and forth like you yeah. can you can even start with depression and you can find yourself mm. in denial and then you're in anger and then you're back in denial again and then you're depressed like it just you can dance around through yeah. all of them and i would even say yes there's only five um but I, that's probably not exhaustive there's such a uh, mm. we are such complex human beings and there's such a nuance of feeling that can emerge out of this um totally yeah yeah i think it's yeah it's good to kind of say that up front it's it's kind of similar when we i did a, a piaget his kind of models of the childhood development it's it's similar kind of thing it's like these models are very useful and helpful but we also shouldn't get too married to the model and forget that right you know real life is a little more complicated right every person's unique every mm-hmm. person's journey is unique and you know we're only we're only trying to describe something in generalities and no one can really fully carve nature at its joints and predict right exactly. that's that's our our desire for control right <laughs> exactly oh great great point exactly yeah so okay so denial stage one um she says almost every patient experiences denial she says denial can last anywhere from a few seconds to many months mm-hmm. and it's usually a temporary stage that people move, move through but she did talk about a few case studies of patients who pretty much maintain denial all the way up until death or, or near death. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the one stands out to me was the story of the woman who put such um, bright, colorful makeup on mm. to um, to hide basically what was her deteriorating health, which was yeah, showing in, right. in her face and um, the coloring of her face. And she... Um, you needed to maintain that that semblance of everything is okay mm-hmm. for her and I herself. Think mm-hmm. The the other kind of you know denial tactic that she kind of used was she referred to her tumor, her cancerous tumor, as a wound. So I thought that was very telling as well. The kind of 
uh, she talks a little bit about like the euphemisms that somebody might use at this where they're, they're not actually able to kind of explicitly acknowledge death or explicitly acknowledge the tumor. They might use a euphemism. Yeah. Euphemisms yeah. is a big thing uh, that is talked about in, in social work school as well. Um, mm. Because so common, it's so common to our vernacular to say, oh, somebody passed away mm. or um, they're no longer with us. Right. Um, they've, they're gone for the big sleep. All of these euphemisms yeah. that are used to soften it for ourselves as we talk about it. However, the, the downside to euphemisms is it can be misinterpreted and misunderstood, especially by children. Um, they, they think, mm. oh, like, well, if grandpa's just sleeping, they'll then he'll back. wake up. Yeah. Right. And if they went away, they'll come back. Right. There's mm. that sort of idea of where did they go? Yeah. Um, so the, the euphemism is, is our own culture's way of softening and, and creating some denial around the, the permanency and the, um, the pain. It's painful. Mm. Yeah. It's just pain, and it's. But can you blame us? I mean, yeah. <laughs> who likes pain? <laughs> right, <laughs> suffering is everywhere. So these are just our our natural ways of coping with with something that is a very painful emotion. Same with the very cold clinical approach from mm -hmm. the medical staff is they have to function in some way. If they were to really tap into their emotions and feel the pain with the patient to the extent that it would flood them too, then they, mm. there's this fear that they wouldn't be able to do their job and be the objective lifeguard um, to the drowning person. Right. And sometimes that can be uh, exhibited by the doctor. Sometimes it's exhibited by the family member. There's actually a story. I, I actually teared up reading this. Some of this book was oh, just so, so sad. Yeah. But uh, maybe I'll just read this and then we can kind of uh, unpack what, some of these different things that are going on. All right. So this, yeah, this is about a woman dying in her early twenties um, with two kids and a husband. So quote, a discussion with the husband revealed a rather simple, unemotional man who seriously believed that his wife was better off living a short time at home with the children rather than having her suffering prolonged by hospitalizations, endless costs, and all the ups and downs of her chronic illness. He had little empathy with her and separated his feelings quite effectively from the context of his thoughts. He matter-of-factly related the impossibility of having a stable home environment with him working nights and the children living out during the week. Listening to him and placing ourselves into his position, we are able to appreciate that he could deal with the present life situation only in this detached manner. She, meaning the wife, became gradually weaker and for a couple of weeks just dozed and held our hand and did not speak much. After this, she became increasingly confused, was disoriented, and had delusions of a beautiful bedroom filled with flagrant flowers brought to her by her husband. Uh, rejected by her family, often overlooked or ignored by the hospital personnel, she became a pitiful figure, a disheveled-looking woman who sat desperately lonely on the edge of her bed, clutching the telephone to hear a sound. She found temporary, temporary refuge in delusions of beauty, flowers, and loving care, which she could not obtain in real life. She did not have a sound religious background to help her through this crisis and required weeks and months of often silent companionship to help her finally accept her death without suicide and without psychosis. Mm. So really, really heavy stuff. Um, yeah. But I think that story, I mean... 
I think one of the nice things about this book is that she includes these longer stories to kind of really let us get the human element of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there are a few examples that we're kind of talking about of the, the denial stage. So the denial of the husband was to just completely detach emotionally and just be completely cold and, you know, like not caring to her because he just couldn't, couldn't deal with it any other way. Mm -hmm. So that was the kind of denial on his part. And then the, the denial on the part of the woman, which was so sad. She, she's having these like delusions and fantasies of mm -hmm. actually thinking that her room is full of flowers brought to her by her husband when in yeah. fact he, you know, he wasn't he doing wasn't anything. There. Yeah. 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 Well, and that just, if anything, when I hear that, yes, I'm sad for her mm. because she, she didn't have that kind of support that she really wanted. And yet I'm also in awe at the resilience of the human spirit and yeah. our own psyches and our abilities to create these, these very, uh, creative coping mechanisms because that's what yeah. fantasy is. It's, um, yes, we could pathologize fantasy because you're right. It's a delu you hear that word delusion has so much pathology mm. attached to it. And it's true that there are some negative consequences to living in a fantasy world. And at the same time, why do we even have it in the first place? It's this ability to imagine things is something in born in us since childhood and it's a way of um, creating an escape or helping yeah. helping ourselves cope when the reality is far too painful to mm -hmm. face in the you know the full front of it. Um, it's too abrasive. The fantasy creates um, a a necessary place to escape to. Yeah, a bit yeah. of distance in that initial initial shock. And, mm -hmm. and she she seems to be she, you know she says like denial is totally natural and serves that function like it serves mm -hmm. a useful function and exactly. she's she's very big on like you don't want to force this this isn't like ripping off a band-aid mm -hmm. if the person has signaled that they're not ready to accept it yeah you can do some damage by kind of trying to move them along too fast so absolutely part of what the chaplain or the the doctor or the loved one should be doing um ideally is listening for those cues and then um, of their readiness of their readiness to move on to the next stage yeah exactly yeah i um i'm so glad you say that cuz it's for the outsider right the, this is again like information for the people in proximity to the person who is mm. going through this and facing this incredible pain of their own death and um the uh, i worked in drug treatment in in addiction recovery treatment for 3 years and you know in that, those kinds of spaces right they denial is something that comes up a lot mm, um yeah. and in terms of uh recovery it's seen as the very first stage for change that you have to admit that you have a problem and yeah. the longer you deny the longer you prolong your your own healing process right mm. and and that just to bring use that as a parallel experience here that um again it comes down to control right we don't want to admit that we don't have control over something mm. um and so 
or um, you know, I'm speaking the we, uh, but it would be like if it were yeah, I, yeah. if I were the one who was dealing with uh, an addiction issue, for example, um, I wouldn't want to admit that I don't have control over this thing that's right. much bigger than me. And um, I try to hold on to trying to manage it for as long as possible mm. and um, or like keep my fantasy world that I can that I can still do this thing that's actually hurting me long term. Um, so there's. There's a lot of stigma that's placed on that word denial, I think, because of recovery, the culture around recovery that it, denial can hurt other people mm. because the longer somebody is stuck in their addiction, the codependents, the, the people in proximity to that person can also be, you know, really taken along for the ride and, and hurt when the person mm. is refusing to get help and admit that. This is something beyond their control that they actually need outside um, interventions for. Right. So similarly, right, the what, like your story about your grandfather, like not wanting to give up driving, mm -hmm. not wanting to admit that maybe they need outside intervention, outside help to um, be someone to drive them, right? Yeah. Or I need actual medical attention. I need outside help for this. This mm -hmm. is not something I can just like slap a bandaid on and heal on my own. And so there's this like really um, the reason denial is there is that it takes time for the person to really prepare and face the very humbling fact that they don't have control over something and that they need help. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's and they're hurt. You're, they're heading towards something that's much bigger than than mm. anything that they can manage on their own. Yeah, I love that kind of mapping this onto what is it the 12, 12 stages of the kind of um, twelve steps twelve steps program yeah. Mm -hmm. because yeah the the first step of the twelve step pro program is admitting you're powerless it's a form of acceptance so it's yeah. it's kind of not funny but like amusing that the first stage of that is kind of like the last stage of the grief process right so. Yeah, there's there's kind of a, a journey even leading up to state step one in mm -hmm. that in that journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that like as we were earlier, we were talking about how death is and change, right? The mm. end of one life and the beginning of a new life is something that happens throughout our entire lifetimes, like adolescence, mm. right? And in this case, like somebody who is facing recovery is 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 having to admit like the death of the way that things were yeah. that's no longer working in order to cross this threshold, this threshold experience in order to rebirth themselves uh, into their new life of recovery. That's, if they're ready for it. If they're that's ready to great. Cross. Yeah, that's great. And maybe just uh, one or two other of these kind of examples that um, kind of demonstrate denial. One thing that Kubler Ross says was really common was, pretty much everybody when they first got the diagnosis said like, no, that's not true. Like, no way that, that couldn't, that couldn't be me. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you mixed up my files with somebody else. Um, a lot of them wanting to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. This is all, yeah, that's also all very common. Right. That's the thread of hope, right? Yeah. The thread of hope. Denial and hope kind of work together mm. very much. Um, they're like buddies. <laughs> yeah. Because it's in some way, um, the denial um, is 
moving away from accepting something that would be intolerable to feels intolerable to accept until someone's actually ready. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that denial part will lean into the part of the, the part of you that's always hopeful. Mm. Yeah. Hopeful for life. Um, so they're kind of, I don't want to say colluding, but they're like working together yeah. as a team Absolutely. in order to keep this per- the person in a place at enough distance from the reality for them to ready themselves and cope and prepare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was even thinking maybe this is, maybe this is a different point completely, but it made me think of um, like, and you watch the movie of a, of a, and like a woman takes a pregnancy test, then she finds out she's pregnant. It's unexpected. Like, what does she do? She always takes like 10 more. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I, I think if you take a, a negative pregnancy test, you're probably like, oh, I'm not pregnant. Like, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to take 10 more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there I guess is that. There depends is that. on your goals. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 But I think there is that kind of like, I maybe don't want this to be true or I'm in shock not expecting this to be true. So I'm going to like retest this like 10 times. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where we get into like yeah. the nuances, right? That um, like the, I said earlier, there aren't just like five stages. I think denial mm. encompasses also feelings of shock. Yeah. Yeah. And, shock is definitely in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And numbness, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes in the face of shock, we actually freeze up and there's no feelings at all. So the feeling mm. of being totally numb in that um, frozen state is also a form of denial because your system is just arrested and refusing to move forward in time because they're like, well, if I pause here, <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe it'll go away, yeah. right? That's like the, the, the frozen playing possum, like the body. This is one mm. of the survival, flight, fight, freeze, appease responses. Um, like a possum that fro- freezes up it's just like if I'm really still, maybe this threat that just this, of this news will just mm. go away. Which, yeah, that's that's I was going to mention shock because that's maybe like a sub stage within this denial. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that's a more like passive versus yeah. an active denial. Oh, go ahead. Well, and then they also talk about a little tiny, tiny bit about isolation in mm. this stage. And I would have loved for her to elaborate more on this. She really doesn't say much about it. Um, but... The, well, and the quote by uh, Tagore at the beginning is, man barricades against himself. And I'm wondering if that's a certain uh, coping mes- mechanism or or state, um, excuse me, or behavior of denial, which is like, I'm just going to isolate myself from en- everybody so I don't have to deal with this or so I don't have to really mm-hmm. like look at look at this look at it yeah look people are our mirrors Mm. so um like i was saying earlier our existence our sense of self and our sense of existence is often dependent on others reflecting that back to us Mm. bearing witness to us right as we ventilate as someone bears witness we get a sense that we exist and and through that other people also are our mirrors reflecting back our reality, mm. right? So like someone sees you and they're like, oh God, you look terrible. And you're like, do I? Like they, like someone <laughs> yeah. is literally being your yeah. mirror yeah. by telling you how you look. Right, and so, right. um, so this- uh, Well, and you're, if you're, oh, sorry. Yeah, okay, go ahead. I was gonna say like, yeah, if you, uh, you know, are diagnosed with a terminal illness and you're around other people, they're all gonna be 
sad and treating you differently and like that in these ways makes it a lot harder to deny when you're getting that feedback that's exactly that's great yeah they're reflecting the reality back to you Mm. and denial is not wanting to look in the mirror so yeah if other people are your mirrors you're not going to want to look into that mirror either and the isolation the self-isolation the barricading and, and the hermiting is a way to avoid having to look in that's so great. I'm, that I'm glad you brought that up because I was kind of a little puzzled how that piece fits in there. But I think that's, I think that's spot on. Well, maybe we can go on to stage two. So anger. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Again, lots of nuances yeah. around anger because I think there's, you know, different ways that we direct that anger when we're mm-hmm. in such a stage. Like you can, she talks a lot about directing that anger at God. Yeah. Um, that's a big one. one. Um, cause this is again, right about the loss of control or the record, the shattering of that illusion of control Mm -hmm. that we all maintain a steady degree of denial as we move through our lives a little bit with. So, um, this God force, however you conceive of God, I'm using 12 step language here too, Mm um, is something that, symbolizes that which is greater than us beyond control. Yeah. And so when you're facing something like death, which falls into that category, the the natural like place to turn your attention and fingers of blame towards is, well, who did this? <laughs> and, yeah. and sometimes that finger gets pointed up at the God force, however you conceive of that. Um, or yeah. can, you know, there's, there's a lot of like outward directed anger in the form of blame mm-hmm. um, of wanting to, again, to bring a sense of control. If we can understand what caused something, it gives us some kind of comfort that at least we know, okay, if this thing caused it, well, then that's what I need to focus my attention on to fix this. Right, right. She says the, the question that preoccupies people in this stage is why me? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that's the mm-hmm. other way the finger gets pointed. If you're not pointing your angry finger of blame at God or the doctor who told you, mm-hmm. right, it's their fault that they're not practicing medicine correctly and they gave me this incorrect mm-hmm. diagnosis and I need to. So if that's the cause, I need to go to a different doctor, right? Or anger at um, the staff that's not treating you in the way that you want. Those are all outward pointing fingers of blame and Mm -hmm. of anger and then the other way anger gets directed is inward at the self right Mm -hmm. which is again another way to find control because if okay if it's not out here that's the cause well then why me is i must be it's it's all my fault and there's this also anger that you're being the victim at the same time. Well, and it goes back to what we were talking about of, of wanting wanting to maintain the belief that this was in your control or somebody else's control. That like, had I just done X, Y, and Z, this never would have happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that it makes me think of like the book of Job where, where Job is, he's asked, he's suffering, he's dying in some sense and he's asking that question why me and he has pointing his anger at at god saying like look i didn't do anything to deserve this Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so it kind of starts with that presupposition that you know 
people get sick because they they did something wrong or they could have done something differently mm -hmm. there's kind of that's baked into it i think yeah and that and can cause the frustration of like i i did everything right right i ate all my kale according and i did to my, yeah, <laughs> yeah. according to my kind of uh, conceptions of justice like this is this is unjust yes yes well and i think because of modern medical advances again and because mm. we have uh, a society that has embraced a lot of you know healthful trends of ways to like prolong one's life and one's health um we get into I fall into that false illusion of control and susan sontag writes about this um the the, the title of the book escapes me but she was she authored many many novels mm -hmm. and um one was about her breast cancer her battle with breast mm -hmm. cancer and yeah. how um in being the person who is sick right who's been diagnosed there's there's a lot of um blame that happens yeah. either self-blame or or even like insinuated from other people mm. that um oh like what did like what did you do to get cancer like you right, must right. you must um you must live a lifestyle that's way too stressful so your body is fighting itself like there there become all of these like sort of um almost moralistic right uh like m moral judgment explanations as to like mm. what caused you to be diagnosed and to be terminal yeah and um and and frankly like it's not that simple and we can't you know make these assumptions but if we want to empathize and understand where it comes from it comes from this loss of control. We want to mm. explain with cause and effect. And if we yeah. can identify the cause and if we can eradicate the cause, mm. well, then we can eliminate the effect, which is the death. Right. right. No, I think Simple, you right? hit the nail on the head. Right. Well, and, and if it's me, like if mm. I'm the cause, well, if I just change myself, then that'll fix it. And then I won't have to die. And then we head into the, the bargaining territory a little yeah. there. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I feel like we should just go there since we're already kind of... Oh, before but yeah. we do, though, I do want to speak to the other thing of anger that she yeah. mentioned was jealousy, right? So see how like yeah, yeah. anger is can be about, you know, directing your, um, your blame um, or shame towards someone, either mm -hmm. yourself, you feel shameful that you did these things, or you're blaming someone for doing it to you. Or it can also be jealousy. She is mentioning yeah. that... Anger can also be about um, compare and despair, mm -hmm. where you are comparing your your situation to the living, yeah, and are like, "Wow, look at them! How lucky they don't have to deal with this that I'm suffering from so greatly right now." And the jealousy for those who get to still enjoy their life for years more. Well, yeah, and it's more of that same kind of like maybe by that person own person's conception of justice, just like. Hey, I I did everything right, and this has happened to me. And look at her; she's you know smoking a pack a day, or what, whatever the thing mm -hmm. is, and mm -hmm. like she gets to live. Like that's not fair. Like exactly. So it's kind of creates that, like you said, jealousy, anger towards. She calls it like jealousy towards the healthy or the young. Mm -hmm. um, right, the envy, the of envy, that. yeah. yeah. Um, so then well, you start to bargain. <laughs> yeah. So then you start to bargain because you have this idea. Oh, if I could do this, if if I, if if I could do what they're doing, maybe then I'll exactly. Yeah. So that's the bargaining piece comes in, which is this uh, stage three. So um, let me read this quote here: Bargaining is helpful to the patient, though only for brief periods of time. 
if we have been unable to face the sad facts in the first period and have been angry at people and God in the second phase, maybe we can succeed in entering into some sort of an agreement which may postpone the inevitable happening. Mm -hmm. uh, Can I jump into some thoughts here? So if we want to also continue that like parallel process of comparing death to any change process Mm. um, in any change process, there are these moments of ambivalence where you're like ready, but not ready. Right. And this is all like kind of the dance, but Mm. your ambivalence means to ambulate, to walk um, between two by uh, truths. Mm. That's the balance. Um, So you're walking between two truths and you're, um, you know, deciding um, on your readiness to, you know, pick one because in the ambivalent state, you're, um, you're still, you're kind of, you're, you're still in a limbo phase. Well, she does call it like a partial acceptance. Yes. Because when you're in the bargaining stage, you're at, you're at least acknowledging, hey, I do, you know, have cancer or whatever the thing is, but there's still that denial comes in. But maybe if I do this, this, and this, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, there's, there's that. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You're but, right, yeah. right. If I if I do this, this, and this, maybe maybe I don't have to go there. Yeah. Or maybe I can have a little bit of this cake and eat it too. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can I can still maintain some of my my old way of doing things. Or um, you know, I think bargaining is a it can be a bit of like walking two worlds at once and trying to have both and it can also be um a way of of almost like bartering for more time you're like you're you're gonna sacrifice this thing like okay like i'll do anything if you can give me a little more time like and this is this is aimed at god usually um Mm -hmm. or or it might be aimed at the the medical professional she says usually aimed at god and a lot of times not even said out loud, just kind of in that person's thought process. Yeah. This like, is occurring. Right. Like yeah. if I, if I'm real good and I, uh, I go and I attend and I, and, and I, um, you know, say all of my apologies to all the people that I've wronged. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I could get a little more time to do that. And then if I'm still good, right. <laughs> like yeah. for, for good behavior, um, I'd really like to attend my son's wedding before. Yeah. That was one of the, the, yeah. the examples. Well, and that was before I go. So if you could just give me a little more time, mm-hmm. then, you know, then that's it. That's the only thing I'll ask for. Right. The, and then I accept, right. That yeah. this is my fate. Yeah, she's the, the example was this this woman who was dying. Her her son was about to get married, and that that was the kind of bargain. Like if if I you know good and you know do my chemo, do everything right. Like I just want to be able to live to see my my son's wedding day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this was she says, uh, quote, she had made all sorts of promises if she could only live long enough to attend his this marriage. The day preceding the wedding, she left the hospital as an elegant lady. She was the happiest person in the world and looked radiant. I will never forget the moment when she returned to the hospital. She looked tired and somewhat exhausted. Before I could say hello, she said, Now don't forget, I have another son. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind, of, <laughs> right. kind of funny, but the, the point that she's making there is pretty much any time if the, if the person is kind of 
like awarded this this thing that they want they're they're pretty much always gonna like want something else something or, or kind of renege on the the agreement mm-hmm. and she uses she kind of compares it to at one point a child asking to go to a sleepover and the yeah. child is saying like uh, the child is initially told no mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then the child kind of comes back with well, okay but if i never fight with my sister ever ever again then can i go and you know then the child is allowed to go to the sleepover and then yeah. and then she kind of says but of course the the child is then going to fight with the sister at some uh, future time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the the uh, quote agreement isn't really um kept i guess is the i think the point yeah yeah well yeah. that's the thing we have to remember right when you're facing death and you're feeling those feelings of helplessness and the loss of control well those are all things the helplessness and the loss of control is all reminiscent of being being a child and mm. we're all reduced to our own you know inner child states when we're facing helpless circumstances that's that's kind mm. of natural that comes out and so you know this is this is something in innate in all of us that in us in a place of sheer desperateness when we are facing absolute threat to our lives in yeah. this case that's what's happening mm-hmm. um we will do anything to survive the system will do anything to survive yeah and um and we're also right we're, there's there's no um at that point, right, there's there's sometimes no um, forethought into the consequences of that or how that will right. affect other people because there's no time for that. It's just about like alleviating the life-threatening situation, which is right here and now. Mm. And I think for those in proximity to the dying person, sometimes, um, you know, we can cast, like, I, I and I'm saying this because maybe I'm feeling parts of myself that, that come up around this. Um, you can cast harsh judgment on somebody for making promises they can't keep or, right. Or like even just that denial word, right. Like, oh, like what's wrong with you? Just accept it. Like that, Mm. that kind of thing. Like there's this sort of like criticism and judgment that can be hurled towards somebody for being in these stages. Oh, you're so bitter and angry. You're so annoying. I don't want to be around you. Right. So it, it, that, those kinds of judgments and criticisms really get in the way of our own hearts, opening up to the person mm. who is experiencing something really profound. This is a threshold experience and um, they have every right to feel whatever they want to feel. Yeah. And, and so, and not to take it personally, I think is, is important that when they're making these promises that, um, you know, a, a doctor might be like, well, they're just trying to be manipulative. They're just trying to see whatever they're bargaining to see whatever right, they can right, get. Right. right. There's that, there's that judgment in there, but it's like, well, you would too, of course, if you were, if you were the one hanging off the edge of a cliff. Totally. And she talks about how if all of the person's loved ones are taking their anger personally, then it can create more anger and can kind of create these like nasty Mm -hmm. feedback loops. Right. So taking the bargaining bargaining, personally, like like taking advantage of me, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, like that's sort of you can't hold somebody to that standard, the same standard as yourself, who's who's the one who's still living yeah. without without this Im- and, you know, imminent and death. And the, the loved ones, they're going through their own five stages. A lot of, you know, I think, which we'll kind of get to as well, that these stages map onto them, kind of yeah. like how we talked about earlier. So they could be 
you know, there, there's oftentimes a mismatch. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can move on to stage four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So stage four is depression. There are two different types of depression that she kind of distinguished. So we have reactive depression uh, and then preparatory depression. So my understanding was reactive depression is mourning losses that have already occurred. So like in the case of a terminally ill patient, they might have already lost their ability to do certain things. They might have already lost their ability to, you know, watch their kids after school or play with their kids. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's reactive depression. And then preparatory depression is looking forward to their eventual death and mourning, you know, pretty much the loss of everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she says that we should kind of think about these two types differently and also respond to them differently. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes the reactive depression, it can be very useful to somebody who's comforting somebody who is experiencing reactive depression to kind of, um, to kind of be optimistic and comforting and saying, Oh, you know, actually like the, your children are, have been, you know, coming over, staying at my house after school, and they've been really adjusting well, like that can be comforting. (sighs) But she says what often happens is we try to kind of be super cheerful and optimistic and say, hey, don't don't be so sad when it comes to preparatory depression. And she's saying like, that's, that's, that's not useful. Uh Um, And that the, the person actually is going to lose everything and they need to be able to kind of express those feelings of sad and grief mm-hmm. around somebody who is not going to kind of, you know, tell them to put on a happy face. Right. Yeah. The, the silver lining um, mm-hmm. always, right. That's, um, this is a, a good, I think um, in line with the theme of what we were just talking about, which is the things that get in the way of us really empathizing with the dying person which is, you know, our own discomfort. And Mm. when somebody's in that depression, right, our discomfort with their sadness is what makes us want to say, oh, cheer up, right? Telling them to cheer up because we can't tolerate their, their depression. And, and that actually, right, indeed, it doesn't help because one, um, you feel what you feel, you can't help feeling what you feel. Mm. And you can't just, uh, I think, you know, there's um, an expression that hopefully it doesn't get passed down to next generations. But, um, you know, where adults would sometimes say, oh, well, when you're, when you're crying, go fix your face, right? This mm-hmm. idea that you can somehow change your feelings and not feel what you're feeling is false. And um, the person who's feeling that way now gets a second arrow. The first arrow is the depression that they're experiencing, their suffering. And then the second arrow there is that now I feel bad that I'm, depressed now i'm feeling shamed that i'm depressed because of how other people are mirroring this back to me totally yeah mm -hmm. no that's that's a great it just kind of compounds the suffering Mm -hmm. Um, right yeah and uh maybe a few kind of quotes here the she says quote this type of depression speaking about the preparatory depression is necessary Mm -hmm. and beneficial if the patient is to die in a stage of acceptance and peace only patients who have been able to work through their anguish and anxieties are able to achieve this stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, what's, when she distinguishes between preparatory 
depression versus reactive depression from what I interpret from that is that she's talking about how when we're grieving change any change there's always a loss when it comes to change the loss of the old way to embrace the new to cross that threshold right so we're going to have grief for what was lost and that's the reactive depression Mm -hmm. but then there's also um a grief that has to happen for what was your projected future you know the idea of um like for, I'm going to use a breakup for an example, mm-hmm. right? Cause that's also a death uh, yeah. in a relationship. Yeah. And so there's the grief for the relationship having broken up and the loss of the person. Mm-hmm. But then there also is this sort of anticipatory grief where you're anticipating that in the coming year, I'm going to have to face all of these seasons, all these seasonal markers without my person. So Mm. I'm going to go through the holidays. And last year we did this and I'm going to come upon those holidays and they're not going to be with me for that particular thing. And then, and then come springtime, um, it's going to be our anniversary. And I'm going to remember that a year ago we were celebrating this and Mm. this year they're gone. Right. So there's this sort of like anticipation of what you will have to grieve in the coming future and then even the hypothetical timelines that you created of the life you hope to live right the dream of 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 maybe having a family together that now that dream is lost or um you know same goes with grieving the end of a of a career or retirement um or if you're changing careers Mm -hmm. right um you're not going to be that thing you imagined yourself to be yeah and so there's this like grief of of reacting to the present and the past. And then there's this um, preparatory grief for in the case of the dying person of what they will have to now face now that they're, that this is in Mm. fact true and happening um, of, okay, I won't be able to spend more time with my grandkids other than this limited window. I'm, I'm not going to have time to, um, go travel the world like I had wanted to, right? right? right. There's this sort of anticipatory grief of, of then like, what will it be like to get my affairs in order and, Mm. um, and actually like give my possessions away if I have to witness that. Um, so grieving all of these things in the future, um, and then not just like actual future timeline, but also the loss of hypothetical timelines that will never be because of this pivotal change yeah and even like as you were talking i was just thinking how all these stages are kind of leading towards towards acceptance and this stage you can already see and kind of sense how the the unpleasant truth has kind of set in Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. the the reality has set in i should say yeah you know this this is like stage four of five and we a lot of times think of depression as again like kind of like an earlier stage there's there's an episode of um the office where michael scott says something about he's trying to like move his coworkers through these five stages of grief and he says he said <laughs> the it. line is something like you know if if i can if i can get them to depression by lunchtime we'll be in good shape and it's kind of, <laughs> right it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of funny or not funny but just like ironic to be thinking about it as this as this way cuz we often i think think of sadness or depression as kind of like the the beginning but this it can be it can be right? yeah cuz these are not nonlinear yeah. um and so it certainly can be um but i guess my my point is I, 
I, I think for me, just it kind of highlights the fact that like when somebody is feeling really sad, that that is likely was preceded by several steps leading up to it. Yeah. Yes, right, right, exactly. Um, there's, um, and then when people do the thing that she talks about, which is the silver lining, um, mm. where they try to say cheer up, right? They're reintroducing denial right back, right? Yeah. So um, really, like, I think, like, if there's any, like, simplistic like, could I explain to a six-year-old takeaway from this in terms of relating to others who are going through a tremendous change? Or I would say to, for anybody mm. who's being the witness, who's be, bearing witness and holding that space with somebody, is to just be with them in whatever stage they're in. Yeah. Be with them and, yeah, yeah, I'm depressed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. How is, tell me what that's like. Tell me what yeah. it's like. There's a wonderful Brene Brown um, talk and then it was turned into like a cartoon video on YouTube of where the itch. I love how the illustrator depicted this where when you're being with someone, you're empathizing with somebody. Mm. It's like climbing down into the, the dark hole with them and sitting in there with them. Mm. So if somebody's in that dark hole of depression. Um, you don't have to let their depression flood you. Like again, like the separation is important because you want to maintain separation as the witness and the lifeguard from mm. the person who's drowning in order to help them the, be the best. Otherwise you're just drowning too, but you do want to join them in the water and you want to get into that water and have some understanding through their communication, through their verbal ventilation and expression of what it's like to be down here. And mm. rather than trying to pull away from that, just sitting in it. Yeah. And, and by your courage to sit in that emotion with them, that just that simple thing of sitting in that with them gives the other person the reassurance that, yeah, and it's okay to feel this mm. because if they can sit with me in it, it, that's the mirroring. If they can sit with me in this, then I then it must be okay to be here and feel this way. It's yeah, so validating. That, that's great, and she she talks about that a lot. That a lot of times the 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 best thing that you can do for somebody is to just sit with them in silence, or hold their hand, or just just kind of be present or available. Like they might actually want to be alone, mm -hmm. but knowing that if they do want somebody with them, that you're like one call away. I yeah. think that's yeah, that's a big message, and that also we're kind of getting into the acceptance stage already, which... Right, because um, depression is not sugarcoating it anymore. Right. Yeah. In the acceptance stage, uh, she says a lot of times the dying person does kind of want to be left alone. They're starting to really disconnect, um, and but not disconnect in the kind of like denial, like I'm just going to not acknowledge this, disconnect in that they're kind of starting to unplug from the world they're they're starting to tune out mm -hmm. television what's going on in the news right. they're wanting to hear less about you know the latest gossip they're starting to uh want to see less and less visitors right healthy separation from family relations mm -hmm. yeah and that that can be she says this can be like a really hard part on the the loved ones because they're they can like again take this personally oh feel it as a rejection of them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and then there's also 
like we've kind of talked about this battle between like hope and acceptance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes that can get compounded where the the dying person is accepted their death and they're they're ready to die and maybe their loved one isn't and can like you said mentioned earlier kind of make them feel bad about that of kind of like oh you're you're giving up or you're quitting Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so and she says like this is (laughs) definitely not useful or helpful for the the dying person right when it's kind of framed this way they've they've kind of reached this acceptance and are ready to die but I think there's one example where like the husband wasn't ready to let go and he's just like, this is unacceptable. Like she can't, she can't die. She can't quit. Right. And or she like says, we said earlier, yeah. the doctor's saying, don't quit on me. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And that kind of, I think again, speaks to our kind of <laughs> macho culture of just like, come on, man, like one more push up. Don't, don't give up. Right. So I, th- I think what is radical about this book is, viewing acceptance as um a natural thing and um maybe i'll even say good thing yeah yeah mm-hmm. you know as you're saying this i'm just rec- like i think it's so appropriate you say it's macho culture it's mm. um you know if we want to frame it in terms of yin and yang and like m- divine masculine divine feminine energies right um our culture is very is very much in um you know, applauds the the sort of masculine energy, and and this is not having to do with gender, but more mm-hmm. so just the um, the way we conceive of these differing energies. But the the masculine energy of um, productivity, of like mm. things are always progressing, things are always improving, and and growth, and you know, my my bank account must always be um, collecting interest and growing. Right, mm. we never want to see any. Th- thing of decline um we shun decline everything has to be this like linear thing and um whereas uh like sort of the feminine energy celebrates these cycles and these returns back to the beginning Mm. so um and and we need both to be honest right like when we wake up in the morning with the sun the sun is associated with the masculine right like in greek mythology that's apollo and um, we get up and the sunlight like invigorates us and we go out and we do our day and we're like accomplishing things and, and we don't give up. We persevere and we, we um, express our vitality. And then at the end of the day, when the sun sets and we get into the night, the darkness, right? Death is about darkness. It's facing mm-hmm. that, that great sleep, the great dark. And that's like the yin, divine feminine energy. And at nighttime, we come back to our homes and we restore and we, we return back to these like, you know, childlike needs of ha- being held, connecting relationally with, mm. with loved ones, um, nurturing ourselves, like, like creating almost like a womb space. Our home space is supposed to be cozy. It's like our little womb to go back to. Yeah. And she talks a lot about that kind of how, how similar the very end of life is to the very beginning of life. And mm-hmm. the, the patient is oftentimes, or, or not even just patient, the, the dying person is oftentimes uh, spending a lot of time sleeping, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of time by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. Which is, Right, beautiful. It's in it's in maybe um, solitude, reflection of you know. Sometimes it's not just about having validation with the other people. Mm-hmm. Yes, other people 
our supports and our mirrors, but we also need to commune with ourselves. And so often, like when we talk about someone going on a spiritual journey, Mm. um, it's something that has to be set out alone because you need to tune out the voices of others in order to hear the voices within. And then however you conceive spiritually of, um, you know, your supports through divine and entities. Um, So this is a a major threshold crossing. And sometimes you have to commune with your, with your own ancestors. And, Mm. um, you know, there's been, I remember when my, um, when my grandmother was, was dying, um, she's, she was not making sense. She she was speaking in, in word salad a lot. And, um, and sometimes she would mention, the names of all of these people who had died and mm. like it was thought we were thinking, Oh, she's probably talking to them because mm. the veil between worlds is very thin as you approach, um, as you start to approach. And, and, you know, this is also now starting to verge into where spirituality comes into play. Yeah. Cause you know, everyone has different cultural, spiritual beliefs, but it's really common that um, my, my, my mother used to be a nurse and she worked in um, with nursing care patients. Mm. And she said the same thing that they would you know just be like in their beds tossing and turning and saying ruth edith like talking to different different people that were are no longer living Mm. and so there is this sort of like phenomenon that like the the reason that there is this separation in the acceptance stage from the realm of the living is because they're they're like actually starting to commune with the other side is, is what's thought. Um, or there's a need to commune with oneself and, um, just like have, have some self time with this, this mortal corporal body before you, you leave it behind. That's why there's also the loss of desire to eat. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, as you start to kind of pull away from those things in what's a necessary stage. And that gets very terrifying for us who are, you know, in this sort of idea of everything must be progressive and getting better um, Mm. for us to then like turn and accept actually this decline, like the cycles of the year, another feminine cycle, Mm. you know, the, the leaves have to fall off the tree. The world needs to go into winter and die. And so does each person. That's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, no, that's so great. Well, I was thinking we're kind of wrapping up. I was thinking of reading just this last paragraph of this the book. She kind of she kind of lets herself go a little more literary here at the end, and I think she kind of summarizes a lot of her views on death and dying. She says, "Quote: Those who have the strength and the love to sit with a dying patient and the silence that goes beyond words will know that this moment is neither frightening nor painful, but a peaceful cessation." of the functioning of the body. Watching a peaceful death on a human being reminds us of a falling star, one of a million lights in a vast sky that flares up for a brief moment only to disappear into the endless night forever. To be a therapist to the dying patient makes us aware of the uniqueness of each individual in the vast sea of humanity. It makes us aware of our, our finiteness, our limited lifespan. Few of us live beyond are three score and 10 years. And yet in that brief time, most of us create and live a unique biography and weave ourselves into the fabric of human history. It's beautiful. Yeah. I thought that was really, really great. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I feel <laughs> like I don't even want to follow <laughs> yeah, I don't up those words. Maybe we can just end it there. I, I this was so this was so great. Yeah. Um, likewise. Thank I, you so much for for doing this. Thank you yeah. for inviting me. This yeah. has been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. I know that takes a little bit of effort, but it really helps with the algorithm so that more people can discover the show. So thanks for doing that in advance. If you'd like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming up next on the podcast, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast. And there I provide links to articles and essays and books that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if you would like to hear more from Andrea, check her out on Psychology Today. I'll provide the link in the show notes, and there you can see what she's up to, as well as read about some of her information on internal family systems. So definitely check out Andrea. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.